Hey gang, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. Got an awesome episode 72 for you today with my guest, the co-founder and CEO of Vestigo, Marshall Mosher. And actually, it's kind of weird how, you know, I come across some of these guests and they get on my peripherals. Uh, Marshall, actually, um, we were connected on LinkedIn with a lot of folks, which nowadays, who knows what LinkedIn, you're connected to 10,000 people that you don't know. But two in particular, former guests of this podcast, Brian Wish and Morgan Ingram, awesome guys, he actually went to college with. So it was really interesting when I reached out to him that we had that connection. And after he shared his story a little bit, I'm like, man, I got to get you on the podcast. I love what they're doing. I love how they're trying to change the way corporations think about culture building and really engaging with their employees so that they build that really foundation uh, for you know for fun and exciting work, but also that relationship building, that trust, uh, that credibility, those type of things. So really cool um, guest today, just because of, again, his journey's, again, unique, just like many of these folks, but how we discover this passion in college, which ultimately kind of led him to what he's doing today, and there's a lot of tie in there. So let's jump right into it. And my chat today with Marshall Mosher. Let's get started. Marshall, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm excited to hear more about your journey and have you share that with the listeners and some of the things you're doing now, obviously, that are that are really neat. But I, I want to take a step back, as I, I always like to do as I start these things, because I'm, I'm really intrigued, too, around, and I want to get into a little bit about University of Georgia and some of the things you there. The, the fact that you majored in three different areas is just I skated through school. I, I barely got through. So that's pretty cool. Some of the stuff you did there. I want to take a step one before that. And I'm just curious about your upbringing a little bit. Maybe you can you know, start and see if there's some pieces that match with what you're doing today. What were you into back you know, kind of preteen, teenage years? Did, when someone asked you that question of like, hey, Marshall, what do you want to be when you grow up? What was in your mind at that time? Do you remember those kind of that self-talk, those conversations you had? Man, I feel like I can barely remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. Uh, <laughs> but uh, remembering kind of all the way back to that, you know, I I don't think that I I really knew um, as as most people don't. Uh, you know, I didn't necessarily had have a dream to be an astronaut or you know a, a fireman or anything like that. But I I knew that I I loved science. I was really interested in my science classes, and I always had a bit of an adventurous spirit. I think to my my parents' disdain of constantly worrying them from climbing up things and falling off. And we had this drain pipe in our backyards in the woods that I would think was like a tunnel to another dimension and I would go explore. And I think my parents are always worried it was going to flash flood and I would drown in this tunnel. You know, just, just kind of constantly seeking out adventures. And uh, when you're a kid, you don't really think you know too much of it. But looking back, I think that was definitely the... Uh, kind of that adventurous spirit that that got me to kind of pursue the path of of what I'm doing now, um, but uh, but I didn't really know what that meant uh, back then. I just knew that I I really loved my science classes. I loved um, just being living an active and healthy lifestyle, and and I loved uh, adventure sports. Although I was a bit sheltered, I didn't really get a chance to do too many real adventure sports uh, until I got to college. Uh, just because I wasn't, I wasn't allowed. I was a an only child growing up, um, and uh, I think that maybe makes parents more protective because uh, they they're like, well, you're not going to do all these crazy adventure things because you know we only have one of you, so you can't die, I guess. 
Um, that but, makes sense. <laughs> I, I have a, I have a one child, one son, so I can I can see some correlation <laughs> yeah. to that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I was probably uh, you know I probably earned that a little bit from all the all the stuff that I did. You know, I um, when I was two years old, I like climbed up a Ronald McDonald statue and fell off and had to get stitches on my head. I was just always kind of probably scaring them with just uh, being a little bit overexcited in um, in in that respect but um but yeah when i got to college that was sort of my my opportunity to really pursue a lot of those things uh and dive deeper into them that i wasn't able to do before and that's um one of the reasons why i became a guide for the outdoor rec program in college uh where we'd actually guide students on all kinds of outdoor experiences for the first time and of course being a guide um the program actually taught us not only how to guide the trip, but also, you know, how to do that activity. So like, for instance, each guide would sort of specialize in a certain type of sport. Usually most people started off as like a hiking guide because it's relatively easy to you know, learn how to do that. It's a low, uh, you know, low maintenance, not very technical sport, but if you wanted to learn how to whitewater kayak, they'd teach you how to do that. And then eventually after a while of practicing and shadowing other guides, you could be a guide yourself. So I sort of, uh, jumped headfirst into the outdoor adventure world by learning all these things as a, a job in college, which, uh, which is a pretty amazing opportunity. How did, how did you come across that? Was that just like a flyer you saw on campus or, you know, what, what kind yeah, of made you actually. say, oh, this is pretty neat. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, what no, it, was? it was. It was literally, yeah, it was a good guess. Uh, in our, in our rec center, you know, where the, um, where the gym was and, and all the athletic stuff, that's where the outdoor rec program was housed. And there was this big, um, this big banner by the racquetball courts that had the list of all the, all the outdoor rec adventures that were scheduled for that semester. And I would always walk by that and be like, whoa, caving. I don't even know what that is. Repelling, kayaking. Awesome. I'm going to sign up for all these um and uh of course you know they're they are subsidized by the university but they're not free so they're all you know somewhat expensive so i was like well i can't sign up for all these but i can just apply to be a guide and then i get paid to go on all of them yeah that sounds great so <laughs> what was the scariest sort of one like the the one that was just crazy when you're like what like you said caving i'm like i, don't, I can imagine what that might be i have no idea but yeah you know a lot of people have kind of preconceived notions of what some of these things are based on Hollywood, obviously, uh, what you might have seen in the movies. And a lot of people have seen in the movie The Descent or Sanctum or, you know, there's not any happy caving movies. Uh, they're all horror movies. <laughs> so, so it sort of paints this scary picture of, of what that is. And then people, you know, see things like the kids in Thailand that get stuck in a cave when it floods and, you know, no one ever really... Um, has a positive connotation to some of these things uh, until they actually do them themselves, which sometimes make it hard for people to actually take that first step. But uh, when you actually give it a shot, you realize that it's uh, for caving as an example, it's, it's a bit of a, uh, you know, portal into another world. It really feels like you're on Mars. It looks like you're on another planet. There's absolutely no life. It's completely dark. And when you light it up with a headlamp, you see these formations that are just magically beautiful that have formed over thousands and thousands of years. And under the ground, there is uh, some pretty amazing geological uh, formations that make these incredible places that you would never know you're, you're driving over or walking across. And, you know, for instance, you there are some caves in the southeast that you could literally fit a 
NFL football stadium inside of massive caverns. And then there's some spots that are, uh, you know, maybe the, the size of the underneath of a chair that you have to kind of crawl through to get to the other side. So it's sort of this, you know, natural maze you have to navigate your way through with incredible things like underground waterfalls and uh, geological formations and sometimes geodes and crystals and all kinds of really unique things that uh, if you're in really pristine caves that have, haven't really been visited or touched uh, by people other than the caving community, which takes care of them and makes sure that they're not destroyed, then there's some pretty remarkable things that, um, that most people uh, would never really know were there until you, until you give it a shot. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. And the reason I asked that, because I, I remember as a kid, one of the, the most fun field trips we took, I'm from upstate New York, is uh, we went to Howe Caverns. Um, and that was, I can't remember exactly where that was in upstate New York. But anyways, it, similar to what you mentioned, like it was pretty insane, like going underground and kind of seeing just all these creations. Like I've never seen anything like this before. So I have to imagine there's some similarities there when you're talking about kind of going in and find these different types of caves so i guess anyone listening kind of check out online maybe google some of the images if you've never been in one i, I think there's some neat stuff there at least what i remember as a kid um, i'm sure there's some different stuff as well you've seen down there in the, in the south oh yeah and the southeast uh, generally any area with large limestone deposits has a lot of great caves because limestone in particular um it is uh, susceptible to erosion through acid rain. And it's not necessarily the acid rain from, you know, like smoke that's in the atmosphere, or carbon dioxide, things like that. It's just, you know, it happens naturally to some degree you know, throughout uh, throughout the Earth's history. Um, we just went carbon dioxide in the air, um, will uh, mix with the rain. And that rain works itself into little cracks in the limestone deposits and uh, slowly over thousands of years makes those cracks larger and larger and forms these massive intricate cave systems. So the southeast, um, uh, what's called TAG in the caving community, Tennessee, Alabama, and Georgia, um, kind of the triangle between those three states is a massive limestone deposit. So some really incredible places. Uh, if anyone wants an example, Google uh, fantastic or incredible pit. And um, you'll see some pictures of what is the largest subterranean pit in the continental United States that you could fit the Statue of Liberty inside. And that was only discovered, you know, not not too long ago. And that's here in the southeast. Looks like something that's in you know, like the jungle in South America or something. Wow, that's pretty uh, Another place is called uh, Never Sink. If you Google that, um, it was actually on the cover of National Geographic. So a lot of people, uh, one of the reasons why I like caving is because it showcases that there is some amazing but unknown beauty, uh, you know, right in our backyard where people always think of, you know, the grand national parks out west the yosemite the yellowstones as uh kind of the um the pinnacle of of natural beauty in the u.s but that's really uh just from a tourism standpoint uh, what people know about but there are these incredible places that people just don't know about unless you're sort of in tune with the uh, outdoor adventure community um that are potentially under your house or right in your backyard that you would mm -hmm. never know well, I want to get back to a little bit with University of Georgia, because that was kind of the where the jumping off point with some of the stuff you're doing today. Right. Um, two questions. One is, why did you pick the majors you did? They're, they're obviously a little different in nature, right? Biology and economics. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you can find a correlation, but any reason why you did those and how did you manage the workload of, of majors versus your work? And I think I even saw some fact check me on this, that you were in like student government as well. Um, 
yeah. if I'm right on that. So like, how, how did you manage all that from a time management? Maybe you can take that, you know, kind of two, two paths, if you will, um, to answer those if you have to. Yeah, for sure. Well, they didn't have a major in um, uh, in being ADD, so I had to kind of make my own. Um, but I, uh, I I started off as as a biology and psychology double major uh, for pre med because I was uh, thinking that my interest in science meant that I should be a doctor um, because that's what people said I should do. And didn't really realize that uh, that doesn't necessarily translate into um, medicine just because you like science until maybe my junior or senior year when a lot of my friends that were studying for the MCAT um, wanted med school more than anything else. And I just didn't feel the same way. But um, as I was you know, going through those two majors in those classes, I, I was sort of, I really loved how the psychology classes were just a fascinating uh, just addition and sort of break from the science classes. And I was really interested in how, uh, how just people think and how those thoughts, you know, relate to interactions and society and just life in general. And, and I really missed my economics classes from high school. So I figured, well, maybe I'll just take a few economics classes. Um, and I loved the way that economics really is a combination of psychology and biology played out on a you know, larger global market-based scale. It's essentially you know, psychology applied to um, you know, mass groups of people and what happens when, when multiple different um, people interact with different uh, you know, backgrounds and different uh, kind of mindsets in a kind of commerce style way, essentially economics. So all of them sort of fit into this trifecta of learning just how people are and how people work. So, you know, biology is obviously what, what biologically allows us to exist and, and uh, kind of function and live. Psychology is how we think and economics is how we think at a, you know, global and national and communal scale when you factor in multiple different interests all working um, kind of towards their own agenda, creating a, um, a market that, that can have the potential to better uh, everyone that's, that's part of it, um, you know, with capitalism. So it's, it's really a fascinating kind of combination of three things that uh, are actually really logically all fit together, even though they don't necessarily look like it uh, right after out of the gate. But in terms of uh, in terms of balancing everything, I um, I, I got into I, I wanted to get involved with with student life. Uh, you know, early on, I did student government in high school, and just really enjoyed the relationships and leadership skills that it taught me. Most of which you do not get, uh, you know, from academic classes that are um, are you know more rewarding of sitting in your uh, you know your library or your dorm room studying and not socializing. And I knew that that might result in getting you know, straight A's in your classes, but those straight A's don't necessarily translate into the skills you actually need to you know, function in society, um, which I think some of my interest in economics told me that uh, or helped me to see that. So student government was just a, a fascinating way to just interact with other really amazing people in a way that was genuinely about, you know, bettering the environment that we were a part of and the school that I really loved. So I got involved with that my freshman year. And, uh, you know, people that are involved in one thing tend to be involved in a million things. 
So I uh, just quickly found a lot of other passions outside of my classwork that um, that I really fell in love with. And it was really, it, it, I'd say it was really from those extracurricular activities that I discovered the things that I really love to do. Like, you know, the, the outdoor rec program was, was not uh, academically related. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot else that I did that really helped me point in the right direction was kind of outside of classwork. But the combination of everything, I think, really helps for me to just learn who I am, what I love and what I should pursue, where my passions lie. And balancing everything it was definitely tough, but um, uh, but I sort of did it in a way that allowed me to to be pretty good at everything, but not necessarily great at at any one thing. You know, I wasn't the the straight A uh, you know student. I um, probably wasn't the the best you know student government person, um, but it let me to have a lot of experiences that helped me to develop into you know the person I ultimately wanted to become and, and just have some of those insights that I wouldn't have had if I kind of focused on on one particular thing. And you know, another important thing to point out is that I was in school for six years. So it did take me a while. Of course I added a, a master's program on on top of that. Um, but uh, but I was definitely the Van Wilder for a little while of uh, the all the all the administrators um, always joked that I, I would be in school forever. So it was kind of funny. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, what about your? Uh, so, how did you meet your co-founder Daniel? Um, so, when I decided I didn't want to go to med school, I knew I didn't want to be a doctor, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. But I knew that being at UGA had been the most impactful years of my life in terms of being in this amazing uh, just crucible of personalities and diversity and, and interest that helped me to grow, um, just exponentially faster than when I was outside of UGA. So I needed an excuse to stay at UGA really. So I added this master's program, um, in, uh, public administration with a healthcare focus, thinking that maybe the business side of healthcare or the political side or the hospital administration side was maybe something I'd be interested in. And, more than anything, it was a it was a chance to just keep learning. Um, whether that was learning what I did want to do or what that what I didn't want to do, which sometimes is just as important. And at the end of that master's program, it was this joint enrollment program. Um, so I technically didn't graduate from undergrad uh, when I started the master's program. I was doing both at the same time, and there's there's a lot of sort of loopholes that I uh, had to jump through to make this work. But the state of Georgia, the lottery in the state of Georgia pays for um, public higher ed uh, education. And since the University of Georgia is a public school, it, it pays for your undergraduate degree up to 120 hours if you maintain a certain GPA. So of course, that made undergrad free. But there's a loophole to make that pay for your master's program as well. If you do one of these joint master's undergrad programs, then you're technically still in undergrad. Uh, and you're just taking the master's classes as an undergrad student. So technically, the Hope Scholarship will pay for those master's classes until you run out of the 120 hour credit. So um, so I, I kind of did a combination of all these things to just make it work. So I, I could get more time at UGA, get more of an education without having to incur the financial cost of that. Really, ultimately, the most important thing was getting more time. That's really amazing environment to help me figure out kind of where those interests and passions lie. And in the last semester of my master's program, I took an entrepreneurship class uh, just as an elective um, because I was very interested in it. And it really 
helped me to understand that I didn't have to go down the list of careers at the career center you know, gives you and says like, these are the things that your majors will allow you to do. Entrepreneurship said, uh, you know, screw that, you know, make, make your own company. That's a combination of where your passions intersect with your strengths that can be utilized in a way that solves a problem that is not being solved. And I thought that was fascinating. And I was sort of surprised why I didn't take that entrepreneurship class in my first semester, uh, or think that way. And um, fell in love with this idea that I can combine my passion for uh, healthcare and helping people live an active and healthy lifestyle for my personal interests in outdoor recreation and um, make a company that combined the two that helped promote active lifestyles through making it easier to access these types of uh, lifestyle enhancing outdoor recreation experiences based on a lot of research that shows the more time you spend outside, uh, you know, the more happy you are and the more healthy you are if that time spent outside is doing something active. So both from a mental and physical standpoint, outdoors equals happiness and health if applied in a fun way. The fun is key because fun means sustainability. If it's not fun, you're not going to keep doing it if you lose motivation. And there's so many really amazing things that are fun that are outdoors and active. So, you know, all the things I love to do and love to do in the outdoor rec program had those three components. And I wanted to make it easier for people to access those. Um, ironically, that idea uh, two years later um, uh, was adopted by a large company called Airbnb when they launched Airbnb Adventures or Airbnb Experiences, as some people know them. Um, we were doing that essentially. Um, and I met my co-founder because he was running a outdoor startup in the Athens um, uh, incubator. It was kind of the startup incubator for the University of Georgia, where um, it uh, gave people who usually students who wanted to start a company the um, kind of office space to get started, the mentorship and guidance to do so. And he was running an outdoor company. Fascinating background, amazing individual who complimented me in a lot of ways. Um, he was a lawyer in a previous life, decided he hated law, um, went to get his MBA at the University of Georgia. I realized that um, he actually liked coding and development a little bit more than business administration and, and was, was studying to be a, um, a developer. So uh, we teamed up to prototype this idea of if we make it more accessible, to uh, you know, go on a whitewater kayaking adventure or even just go on a unique hiking trip with, with a local guide who could take you, would, would people do that on a more frequent basis instead of going to you know, a Braves game on the weekends or you know, a baseball game or something like that? And uh, he, he helps to kind of kick off that idea and, um, and get it off the ground and get started. How that idea that you, you had, like how long when you actually first remember saying, oh, this is interesting and actually executing on it. Was that a very short window or that take, you know, a year or two years to kind of get going? Like, did it keep coming up over and over again? Like, man, I got to do something with this. Sort of. Um, I think it was always in the back of my head without me really realizing that starting it as a company was like a viable option. So I, as, as a lot of really amazing ideas go, they're not necessarily anything new. They're just combining different unique things that already exist together in a way that hasn't really been combined before. So the outdoor rec program that I worked for was doing that exact same thing, but it was only for students at the University of Georgia. 
And if you weren't a student at UGA, uh, I think you actually could still sign up for a trip, but you probably wouldn't know about it in the first place. And if you didn't live in Athens, you you definitely wouldn't know about it. And I was always fascinated with Airbnb story. Um, ironically, since I ended up doing the same thing, but uh, I loved the combination of of um, uh, ways that the sharing economy unites resources in a way that that betters you know two different markets. So like what Airbnb and Uber did, where plenty of people have cars and free time, plenty of people need rides. Uber didn't invent the taxi driver. Um, they just use a not very new technology of you know GPS location and a mobile app to pair people with one resource to people who need that resource and uh, really just connected those two markets together. So no one was doing that from an outdoor recreation, outdoor adventure standpoint. And um, I think it was, wasn't until that entrepreneurship class where I sort of realized that potentially trying that was possible. And I think, I think I didn't realize that because I always assumed that, that whoever starting, whenever someone starts something that they, you know, they must have a lot of experience in this space to, uh, to, to make this happen. I think I didn't realize until taking that entrepreneurship class that most founders, uh, are not qualified to start the company that they started and have no idea how those markets work. And it's sort of that um, naiveness that makes it possible for them to get started because if they had known all the things they would have had to go through, hurdles they would have had to jump over, they probably wouldn't have done it in the first place. So I was like, well, great. I don't know anything and I'm naive, so let's try something. And um, (laughs) sort of jumped in uh, to actually make it happen. And I know a lot of the stuff that, you know, you guys are doing right is with corporations and helping with kind of wellness and health. I want to get into that as well, but where, I, I guess this problem that you're trying to solve, had you seen this a ton? You mentioned, Hey, I, you know, obviously some of the stuff that was cool that we did at, you know, UGA, but is, were you seeing this kind of out in the world with companies, with, with other folks that there was just, just big issue um, or is this just something, Hey, this would be really neat. Let's try to do this and, and almost make a new market for it. Yeah, so uh, as you alluded to, we we did end up switching our uh, business model from B to B to uh, sorry from B to C to B to B. It's you know from B to C, which is business to consumer, to to B to B, working with businesses instead of other consumers, um, and creating these experiences specifically for companies. But before we made that shift, we didn't necessarily do customer discovery in the the way we should have, as well as we should have. Um, I had this idea that this this product was going to be you know the next Uber for adventure, and and fell in love with this idea that I could make this product happen rather than falling in love with the problem space, which I think a lot of first time entrepreneurs have that that problem as well, where they sort of make a solution to their problem rather than doing the research and the customer discovery that's really crucial to figuring out um, is that solution something that other people actually want and um, if we'd done better customer discovery we probably would have realized that sooner rather than later but um, uh, eventually we had some uh, some of our clients that came individually that say well we work with I think we this would be fascinating for my company to do as you know a team building experience and some of my friends and their parents and their companies um, kind of gave us 
a uh, chance to you know, took a risk on us to to try that idea for the first time and we balanced both ideas for a while we kept the platform going while we were also leading these company experiences and and it's good to point out as well that these two ideas are completely different it's like if uber all of a sudden made a massive fleet of taxis where they like the taxis it's like an uber taxi um it's not like individuals just running it um that's sort of what we had to do for companies where it wasn't just us connecting local guides with participants we were going out finding the very best guides which was easy from the platform and the reviews to figure out and creating our own experiences that we then trained those guys heavily those guides heavily on how to lead and uh, went out and started creating our own corporate team building experiences. And uh, that was very different from us taking a bit of a hands-off approach when it comes to actually leading experiences and just connecting the guides and the participants. So that was a bit of a transition. We did both at the same time until we realized that we're just doing both poorly and switched 100% to the, um, the second model of working with businesses once we realized that from a revenue standpoint, the first company we worked with was was better in revenue than pretty much the entire you know year earlier of working with uh, just individuals. And um, while it might be an idea that's less scalable, it's an idea that keeps the lights on and it is solving a problem of companies not having very good or diverse options for bringing their team together in a way that actually creates powerful relationships. And we've since then uh, refined our model even more and slightly pivoted again to focus on a, um, a bigger problem than just team building, uh, which I'll, I'll describe in a little bit. But, um, but yeah, that's sort of how that process happened. Yeah, and, and I'm curious, I want to hear more about that. I'm curious just to... I've heard this a lot on the podcast or I've had folks say, how did you, you go from like, Hey, I got this idea, like, you know, company X, you know, and you want to do this to actually saying, Hey, here's how much it costs and actually getting buying on the value and pricing it. How did you guys go through that exercise? Um, Yeah. Pricing is something that even big, very large corporate companies um, don't have figured out and pay consultants thousands, if not millions of dollars to help them figure out. So anyone that thinks pricing is hard um, is not alone, for sure. Uh, oftentimes, startups will drastically underprice um, their product because they would you know, rather do something for free and get that experience and maybe the, the case study and the logo on their website than, than charge too much and have them say no. But uh, we have consistently raised our prices since we got started. And oftentimes, when you raise your price, it doesn't necessarily result in more people saying no. Sometimes it has the opposite effect. Um, there is a point where your price is so low that fewer people will accept it than when it is higher because they think it's lower quality. And that that is especially true for businesses because someone at that business is taking a risk on you and saying, you know, this company is going to help us. They know what they're doing. And if that goes poorly, it reflects badly on that person who made that decision. And oftentimes they would rather spend more on a product that they know is going to be better um, or is at least perceived better than something that is just is showing them they're getting the cheapest option. So we really played around with pricing um, a lot, but it was very low when we first got started. 
And the price we set was essentially just enough to cover our costs, plus a little bit extra factored in because you're always going to have extra extra costs. But we, we didn't really make much money from some of those first experiences, but we didn't lose money either. So it was mainly set as like a, this is a break-even cost. Um, it's sort of what's called startup profitable. It's, it's like, well, you're not making money, you're not losing money, but you're also not really making enough to pay yourself. So it's not really profitable if you were actually paying yourself like a, a fair salary, but but you're you're technically in the green. So that's how we got started and and got a couple good names under our belt and then kind of raised our prices from there. But we didn't just raise our price. It it came from a increase in the quality of the product and in the focus of the product as well which um, uh, is kind of shown in, in the new model of what we're, what we're doing now and what we've been developing over the past year. Yeah, so go ahead and share that a little bit about the new model. What are you guys doing? And, and maybe some of the things you're excited about coming forward the next six months, a year as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, as most founders uh, probably share in this feeling, there's plenty of things to get excited about because we like ideas. So we just don't necessarily like implementing those ideas and all the work that goes into that. So plenty of ideas to be excited about. They'll share later. But to uh, describe how that process happened, um, when we first started working with companies, we were initially put in touch with HR and uh, you know, the chief people officer at a company who their problem was how can we create a stronger culture? And that culture is built on trust and relationships. So how can we create better relationships that are fundamentally built on trust? Uh, and of course, there's a lot of pressure to look like a fun place to work. So a lot of companies are focused on, well, we got to have the the uh, beer keg and the ping pong table, and we got to have at least, you know, quarterly company outings to do something cool. And uh, at least on the outside on our social media, make us look fun, even if we have a lot of problems on the inside. So that was sort of the initial problem we were solving was how can we create better team building solutions? And it wasn't very hard because the existing team building solutions um, are all just complete garbage. Uh, so like taking your company to a baseball game or a happy hour or like axe throwing or top golf, like these are all excuses to check mark a box that says we do fun things out of the office and we take cool pictures and share them on our company Instagram and look like we're having fun. But how many of those things ever attempt to measure the impact of how well they delivered on the promise of, or at least the idea, the hope that they will build more powerful relationships. Zero of them. Um, no one, none of those groups are going to try to claim that. Maybe some of the people internally at the companies are going to try to do surveys, but usually the surveys are more around like, did you have fun? Like, how, how do you like it? What do you want to do next time? It's very rarely uh, a question that says, you know, did you bond with your your teammate on a deeper level? Do you feel like you can trust your coworkers more? Um, the reason why those questions aren't there is because there'll probably be no, and those things were so off from doing that that maybe the people making the surveys don't even think about that. When in reality, that's sort of the reason why they were uh, the conversation started in the first place. So. Um, what we did was we we knew from our experience in lead, leading these really amazing outdoor um, adventures and from a lot of research that we did and a lot of my psychology background that human connection happens at a deeper and more more impactful level 
when you put two people or a group of people in a very specific environment, it doesn't just it just it doesn't just happen. Um, it uh, it needs to be intentional. And that specific environment has a couple key factors. One factor is that it has to be different. It has to be uh, a bit new and unknown. Because if you're sitting in a conference room or if you're at an event that you've been to a million times, you're you're very easily going to um, go into what's called kind of default mental mode where you're sort of just walking through the motions but not actually challenging yourself because you've done it a million times. It doesn't 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 challenge or mentally stimulate you anyway. So that new environment has to be challenging and different. That's that's the kind of one first key factor. The other factor is that ideally that environment should be somewhat intimidating. It should be somewhat outside of your comfort zone. That doesn't necessarily mean, you know, jumping off a cliff uh, or some super high adrenaline adventure sport. That could be, you know, public speaking in front of a crowd. That could be an improv, um, uh, you know, class with your team. You know, the fear of public speaking is the number one fear in the U.S. So uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be adventure related, but... There's a lot of research in how action adventure sports um, are the fastest way to put people into that mindset of getting outside your comfort zone and overcoming your perceived limits, what you thought you could do before. So we used a lot of that psychology to address that factor and the first factor I described. And the third factor really comes from the intentionality and the facilitation of the leaders of the company. That third factor is vulnerability. So a lot of the... Uh, research on this topic has come from an amazing researcher uh, called Brene Brown. She's uh, got the number one most viewed TED Talk in the world on the power of vulnerability. Multiple books, really fascinating information. Essentially, uh, her work is on studying human connection and what makes uh, and leads to powerful human connection and trust, um, the foundation of, of relationships. And her research, uh, she's from a scientific background, is, is vulnerability. And what that means is it's the willingness to put yourself and go into that kind of environment that's new, different, sometimes unknown, sometimes uncomfortable, sometimes outside of your comfort zone, and admit that it is scary, not play the tough, you know, macho person who, who doesn't fear um, anything. Uh, it's to admit that it is challenging. And to use that fear in a way that empowers others to be okay with also being afraid, but to work together to overcome whatever challenge you're, you're facing together. And when you can challenge something uh, in that environment and overcome that as a team, that's what creates those powerful human connections. I mean, think of like the, the, the hero's journey, the story of pretty much every you know, epic movie uh, that exists in Hollywood. It's essentially the hero's journey. It's it's really that format. Um, so, you know, once I describe that, now think back to a Braves game or a happy hour or, uh, you know, top golf. It's so far off from that. It's just not even, it's not even comparable. So we create these environments that challenge people to navigate unknown uh, unknown situations with their team in a way that expresses vulnerability, uh, ideally directed towards the leader, the CEO doing that. And then, of course, our facilitation that takes people from this previous mindset of I can't do those things, going through the experience intentionally in a way that correct uh, connects the uh, goals and values of that company's culture to the experience, and then a debrief on the other end after you've done the experience, how it actually relates back to your work, your company culture, your core values, and the takeaways you can actually 
you can actually implement in the office and your job and in your life um, to make you a stronger, better and more capable, more trusting version of yourself uh, well outside of the actual experience of whatever it is that we do. And, and that experience could be anything. Um, it could be outdoor adventure related, or it could be like, for instance, we just started doing a lot of virtual reality experiences. Uh, there's this one VR experience where you are um, in VR, you can do all these things you can't do in real life. So where this is one experience where you're diffusing a bomb where the person in a headset um, sees this suitcase bomb with all these wires on it with this James Bond music in the background and a, a clock, you know, counting down to zero. And that person has to describe what they're seeing to another person that's not in the VR headset, but has an instruction booklet on how to diffuse the bomb. And they have to communicate effectively in a stressful and time sensitive environment to be able to diffuse this thing. Otherwise it, it goes off. Um, and, uh, and that has nothing to do with outdoor adventure, but it puts you in an uncomfortable environment in a way that you have to trust on your, your coworkers and your team. And communication is the main theme that's emphasized there. And each experience, different types of experiences can emphasize different types of specific factors like communication. Um, but it factors in all of those themes that actually create the result that will, um, uh, that will make a better culture. So those are sort of the combination of things that are, are necessary. And the competition, to go back to my initial um, story before my, my rant on why the competition sucks, uh, is that nothing that companies are doing does that. Um, and even, you know, well outside of what we do at Best Ego, I just, if anyone's listening to this, I just hope people take away, if there's one message to take away and you run a company and you're looking for something to do with your team is don't default to something that's just a way to check mark a box or just a way to have fun unless that's specifically what someone's looking for because maybe a company worked really hard for a month and closed this massive deal and they just want to go you know veg out on something that's not actually going to have any uh you know roi or kpi built into it other than relaxing outside of the office then those things are perfectly fine but um that is what we had to educate people on and how we uh kind of overcame um the uh, initial mindset to help companies realize that um, when we got into it. And um, all of that factors into something a little bit more impactful than relationship building. So relationship building and culture building are sort of what is what a lot of this is perceived as on the surface. But when you think at the CEO level, at the executive level, people aren't necessarily the most concerned about relationships and trust within a company. Those are obviously very core factors, but the biggest concern that we got from the highest uh, top person in the company was actually how they can facilitate a culture of innovation. So culture is the adjective there and innovation is the real key that they're trying to promote because maybe they're, uh, you know, they answer to their stockholders or to their investors. And those people are always wanting to know how are we going to be more innovative than our competition so that we are better positioned in the future than anyone else that's competing with us. And innovation is really the key for doing that. That's why startups can succeed over, over large companies because they can move faster and create at a faster and more capable scale uh, and are not complacent with where they already are. So if innovation is the main problem, then we kind of went back to the drawing board and said, well, well, we're solving for culture and relationships, but those are sort of a part of innovation. 
And if you break down like what innovation means, which is sort of a buzzword that a lot of people say, but don't really understand, it's it's sort of broken down into several key categories. Um, and relationships and trust is one of those categories for sure. But the most important factor for innovation is helping your team to be able to navigate an unknown environment in a way that is um, based on trust, on communication, on collaboration, and on overcoming the fear that it might fail. And that's, that's really key because if you're afraid of failure, then you're not going to put yourself in a situation where you might fail, but all innovation comes from things that are inherently unknown. That's, that's sort of the definition is that, uh, it's something new and inherently in something new, you don't know whether it's going to succeed or fail. So all of these factors are actually things that can be perfectly and really beautifully emulated through the experiences that that we create. So we tweaked our our um, programming and facilitation a little bit to focus more on innovation as the key rather than on relationships and trust, which is really just a piece of innovation. If you think of you know, innovation as the core principle, there's sort of you know like five or six things that that go into creating that and relationships and trust are really just one factor. So we changed our approach to be a combination of things all focused on creating a culture of innovation, which at the highest levels in the company was the key thing that they were struggling with and wanted to find a way to uh, to improve. So instead of just doing outdoor adventure experiences, and a lot of times we would just do those as you know a once or twice a year thing, we started creating this annual program uh, that we sort of call you know VXP 2.0 internally. It's you know VXP is our lazy way of saying best ego experience. 2.0 is sort of for us to um, to showcase that we're not just doing adventure experiences anymore. It's kind of the next level. And what that is is an annual program of all different types of things that are all working towards the end goal of creating that culture of innovation. And of course, uh, it takes it takes constant repetition over time to get to that point. So what we ended up doing was having a repeatable chance to go on these outdoor experiences for um, for people in all departments of the company. So we usually do quarterly out of the office experiences. These are the, the the traditional adventure experiences we were doing before, where each experience might be up to about thirty people, and we encourage the company to keep that open to anyone in the company. So usually the companies we work with um, have departments. We might do this on a department level, and that's department might be you know, two or 300 people. Sometimes it's a smaller company that that's the entire company. Sometimes it's a larger company where that's just a department. But um, with that number, it works pretty well where anyone in the company can choose to go on these out of office experiences, have the most impactful way to experience that mindset, obviously, and um, uh, have a recurring opportunity to go go through those. Uh, but what we do is we come back to that company and we do an in-office session on a monthly basis where we'll bring the virtual reality headsets and anyone who hasn't gone to an actual experience in the session will experience something similar virtually. And anyone who has will already sort of understand that mindset. And then we do a, a pretty um, detailed in-depth facilitation on how they're actually taking that mindset and applying it back into their job and ultimately helping to build that culture of innovation, um, constantly revisiting and reconnecting the dots because that repeatability is so important. And then to yeah. kick all of that off, we, um, 
we have this third component uh, where we have an outdoor adventure speaker come into the office and get everyone really pumped to want to have that mindset and to want to go uh, challenge themselves in those ways. So imagine uh, if, if you've seen Free Solo, uh, the really amazing climbing documentary that came out recently where Alex Honnold uh, free climbed uh, you know, El Cap. Um, which anyone doesn't know what free climbing is. He climbed one of the most famous rock walls and difficult rock walls in the world with absolutely no ropes, which means uh, flawless execution or die, essentially. Um, so we'll have someone like Alex uh, you know, come in to speak on uh, how you executed that level where the stakes are so high and relate that back to lessons in business and kick off that mindset of people wanting to challenge themselves in the first place. So it's more of this annual program with the goal of innovation and change management rather than just team and culture building. Yeah. And I, and I love everything you guys are doing. I think it's creative, it's fresh, and it's it's maybe in at that ground level where this is going to be the norm in five or 10 years, maybe, because, you know, as, especially as companies, there's a lot of competition out there. It's a very fine line of like, you know, why someone would be on one company versus another. A lot of times it's pay. You know, someone may get a few extra dollars. I see this a lot in the sales world. They get a few extra dollars, so they jump ship and they don't really end up liking that company they go to. Um, versus staying somewhere where the culture was better, where they invested in the people. Um, so I like what you guys are doing because it is consistent. It's kind of like sales training. Like I don't think sales training works for almost everyone because normally it's like, hey, someone comes in and speaks and then you don't see them for another year. The consistency, as you're talking about, monthly, quarterly, over time, I think that's really where it makes the biggest impact. And people can see that there's continual investment in them, not only for their their day-to-day job, but also obviously, you know, that they're investing in their, you know, again, the fun, the the, the relationships, building trust, those type of things. So I think that's some really neat stuff that you guys are uh, doing with it. Um, Thanks. There's what, some really exciting research that <laughs> that is showcasing that. So I, I really hope that uh, more people um, see and understand that in the future and that um, uh, it becomes a, uh, you know, a regular part of that innovation training mindset that companies go through instead of sort of this uh, you know, outlier solution, which is sort of where we are right now. But uh, I suppose that's where every startup starts because every idea starts off as crazy until um, uh, people realize how powerful it is. That's the story of how Airbnb started where all their investors said, um, why would anyone stay in someone's house that they don't know? That's crazy. That, that's the most ridiculous idea in the world. And obviously look at Airbnb now. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me, with, with the last minute or two that we have, I, I'm really curious. I, there's two things. If we get to both, we get to both. But let me start off with Gravity Industries. Can you talk a little about that? I see you're involved in that a little bit. I don't know too much about it, but it looked like some like jet propulsion for individuals. Can, can you chat <laughs> yeah. on that a minute? Because that seemed like so neat to me. Yeah, yeah. I was going to the grocery store one day and I was thinking, man, that'd be great if I could just get a jetpack and fly there. And um, uh, now I'm, I'm good to go. I got my jetpack. So I'm just kidding. That's that's not that's not how that got started. But uh, <laughs> that's what people think of sort of in, you know, in jetpacks. Um, but, uh, yeah, gravity is a pretty amazing company based out of the UK, uh, that is creating thousand horsepower jet suits, uh, which is sort of their word for jet pack that, um, uh, is sort of like a real life version of the Iron Man suit. If you, if you're having trouble picturing this, uh, go to, um, just type in take on gravity um, in uh, Instagram and uh, and you'll you'll see some really amazing videos, probably of Richard or several of the other pilots flying 
Um, but in terms of how I got involved, I love any combination of adventure, technology, and entrepreneurship. And um, anything that, that fits in those three categories uh, definitely gets me excited. And we got an opportunity to work with Gravity to create a very high-end version of a Vestigo experience using the JetSuit as a uh, innovation training tool for companies where um, the experiential component of that would be learning how to fly a jet suit and the facilitation component would be how that relates back to thinking about innovation um, in maybe a different way because the, the jet suit is a perfect example of, of that mindset where uh, most innovation is not you know, creating the time machine, you're creating something that doesn't exist, but it's taking different pieces of already existing technology and combining them in a way that no one has ever thought to combine them, like the Uber story. So Gravity uses these really amazing micro gas turbines. It's a small jet engine. It works just like the jet engine on your uh, you know, Delta flight. Uh, it's just much, much, much smaller. And uh, there's a company called JetCat that makes these jet engines. And they're, uh, they had about pretty much their, their consumer base was two uh, customer personas. One was the military because the military would make these small um, RC jets uh, as target practice, shoot them out of the sky. And the other, uh, you know, consumer demographic were just, uh, model aircraft enthusiasts who wanted to make model, you know, remote control jets. Uh, and these are the engines that power them. So, you know, anyone can go on Google right now and go to JetCat and buy a micro gas turbine. It might run you, uh, you know, about $10,000. They're not cheap, uh, but anyone can do it. So uh, Richard, his story is fascinating and, and too long for this podcast. But if you YouTube Richard Browning, Gravity, TED Talk, there's a million um, videos of his speech and his story. But uh, essentially, he took existing technology like these jet engines and found different ways to uh, utilize them in creating a personal flight vehicle that uses the connection to the brain and the body and our intuitive motor skills to fly an aircraft that has no throttle there there's no um uh there there aren't any you know typical aviation control is used to fly the jet suit there is a uh you know a trigger you pull in to start the engines but you hold it in the whole time you're not um you're not letting it out to go down and pulling it in to go up you're flying purely based on moving your arms so essentially you are a tripod of force and thrust with uh two engines on each arm and one on your back and when you hold your arms out you create a tripod uh, of that thrust and anyone who's taken physics 101 will understand uh, force vectors. When you vector your arms out, which means you lift your arms, there's less force going down because more force is going into you. When you lower your arms down, when you make the base of the tripod smaller, you're concentrating more thrust in the downward, uh, you know, horizontal, sorry, vertical y-axis. And that thrust is then is then fighting gravity more and more when you do that and it pushes you up and the way you turn is just by rotating your arms back and forth so it's this really amazing way to fly that feels very intuitive because you're just using the you know the mechanics of the way your brain moves your body to learn something new it's really just like um uh learning how to ride a bike uh once you learn how to do it it, it really sticks with you and you don't necessarily need to read a training manual you just you just do it your brain is a remarkable organ in terms of how it it how it allows you to figure out how to do these amazing things that aren't intuitive or natural 
Yeah, that's that's a really fascinating way to end this podcast. That's uh, I know I'll do doing more research. I'm sure others will uh, as well. So that was really neat. Um, Marshall, last thing, where can everyone find you online? Where can they connect with you? Yeah, um, pretty much anywhere. But um, I post most updates to Instagram. If you go to at Marshall Mosher, or if you just type in at Marshall M, uh, I'll show up uh, right under Eminem, which I'm pretty proud that I show up second under Eminem. Um, but uh, you can reach out to me there. Shoot me a direct message uh, at bestigo.co as well. You can shoot me an email, marshall at bestigo.co. Any way that I can help, I uh, always love um, doing whatever I can. So definitely shoot me a message and happy to help. Great. Thanks so much for joining today. This was, uh, this was fabulous. I appreciate your time. Of course. Yeah. No, thanks for having me on the show. And uh, really excited to hear some of the other episodes and guests as well. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview and look forward to having you for the next one. And if you are getting value out of this podcast, please head over to iTunes. Leave me a quick review. Let me know how I'm doing. It's the only way I'm going to be able to make this podcast better each and every episode. And go connect with me online at Brian Andreco on Instagram or Twitter or head over to my website, brianandreco.com, where I house the podcasts, you know, my CrossFit journey, a ton of blog articles. I even have a now page to kind of keep people up to speed on the last couple months. Um, at worst, it gives my mom peace of mind to keep tabs on me and know that I'm doing okay. So I hope you guys continue to do great. Um, I look forward to having you on another episode and keeping connected online. Take care, have a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon.